Welcome to Managed Care Cast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Skylar Jeremias, Assistant Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. Early on in the pandemic, having the ability to predict where outbreaks were going to take place was something to be desired. Cotivity developed a COVID-19 tracker map using big data models and artificial intelligence technologies, which can accurately predict where in the United States new COVID-19 outbreaks would occur and show the relative risk of infection for people with underlying health conditions. On this episode of Managed Carecast, we speak with Nicole Newmarker, the Executive Vice President of Development and Innovation at Cotivity. Nicole shared Cotivity's results with their tracker map at the 2021 Academy Health National Health Policy Conference and provided us some insight into what impact this technology could have in the future. So to start us off, what are some of the struggles with developing large data models for the healthcare industry? In healthcare and the data, data interoperability has been a focus and a massive investment over time. Um, but I would say seeing the yield of that is still a bit suspect at this point. And when we look at what we're doing to lay down critical factors for successful data models, think about three things. The first thing is how are we correlating and mastering our member or patient data? Um, How do we make sure that when we get a massive amount of data about a patient, we're correlating the right information to the right patient and we're not double counting patients. That's a critical stage, which is mastering member data. The second thing is when you think about the longitudinal data of a member, it's really the temporality of data that you have to figure out how to structure appropriately so that you understand what's happening in time and the sequence of events that happen over healthcare. You know, in your own life, you can recognize that a lot of things happen over time and there's gaps in that timeline and which gaps maybe have significant impact and which don't. Um, So understanding temporality of data is a second very important variable. And the third one is standard taxonomies and standard medical data that you wanna bring into those data models. So for example, having a very consistent set of provider data is critical. Having um, the ability to bring in standard medical taxonomies like HCC codes and other taxonomies that we use to understand the data behind the data, so to speak. Um, So when you take those three things into account, mastering your member data, the temporality of member data, and then finally standard ontologies like provider or HCC codes. Those are three key areas we focus on for uh, building out our data models. In your presentation, you discussed the development of a COVID-19 outbreak prediction tracker. What data informed the MAPS development? So our COVID-19 tracker started pre Um, pre-testing. It started pre-widespread testing. So our goal was to try and understand where were outbreaks happening and about to happen without any sense of testing surveillance. So as surveillance was growing with respect to testing, we wanted to be able to isolate and understand where those outbreaks were beginning to happen, even in states where they claimed there were no outbreaks. And we did this in a couple of ways. Uh, First, we looked at claims data. So claims data was important for us because 
in a claim, you can see whether a person has gone to the doctor and some of the attributes of that visit with the doctor. And so we started to take all of those visits and look at them. Uh, CDC put out the idea of a, uh, a care profile for COVID, which meant there was a likelihood they were getting things like flu tests, but still not um, having a flu diagnosis, or they were getting chest x-rays and still not getting diagnosed with COVID or the flu. And so we started to look at all of those different factors in the transaction of the visit. And by looking for anomalies between normal flu diagnosis and the levels of normal flu diagnosis over a given time period and comparing it to these attributes of flu without a flu diagnosis, by seeing the gap, we could see that there were areas of the country and very down to specific um, counties where we saw the gap no one was talking about COVID being prevalent in those communities. And yet we could see in probably 10 to 14 days, they would start to see visits into hospitals and more significant outbreaks. Um, and that's where we started to model out each state, state by state, and got fairly close in predicting the majority of those, what I would say, undercover outbreaks that were happening. And that was an important stage of the pandemic because without widespread testing, which we all know took a while to get rolled out. Um, this allowed us to isolate areas where healthcare, er, healthcare functions like hospitals and doctors could get prepared and ready uh, versus it catching them completely by surprise as we saw happened on the East Coast, New York City and areas like that. What sort of patterns has your COVID-19 tracker revealed about outbreaks and how have you adjusted your model to account for those patterns? As the data has come out more publicly from CDC and other NIH and other uh, organizations, our patterns have changed only insofar as now we get an official diagnosis in our data where we didn't before. So as tests are coming forward, even as vaccines are coming forward, we start to see that data in our models. And now we can be more specific around where we see growth patterns. So our models have evolved in that we're now trying to correlate, now that we know definitively where there are COVID outbreaks, uh, we're starting to try and correlate other factors. As an example, when the CDC puts data out about COVID, it only has about 6% of their data is covered with additional data such as comorbidities. So if, if all they know is that a patient has COVID, but they don't know anything else about that patient, it's really hard to draw any conclusions. Our data often is augmented with quite a bit of other data relative to the diagnosis. So we get the diagnosis and we can draw correlation between comorbidities and, uh, and, and, and outbreaks and specifically where those comorbidities are pushing the boundaries of a given healthcare system in a given area. Um, and the interesting patterns that have emerged for us are a little bit counterintuitive in some ways. Um, as, as more data comes out about how to prevent COVID, we've started to see demographic shifts. We see this in the public as well, demographic shifts where the growth in actual COVID diagnosis tends to be in the 20 to 30 year old range, and that's growing quite quickly. And the diagnosis in the older ranges, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 is, is going down regardless of comorbidity. Um, and so what we're seeing is even in cases where say an older population has 
a comorbidity, they have diabetes, they have hypertension, you'd think we'd see more of them entering hospitals. But our thesis is that they're likely taking advantage of hand washing, um, not going out, wearing masks, social distancing, and therefore they're not landing in the hospital at the same rate as say the younger demographics with or without comorbidities. We have some information around that on our website, um, but it's a little bit counterintuitive. I should also add our population is largely covered by insurance. So the data we're pulling from is insurance-based um, and the CDC data largely covers a, a kind of a multitude of populations and not just those covered by insurance. Has your company been able to incorporate data on local policies, such as mask wearing and capacity limits to aid in hidden outbreak predictions? Our data largely comes from a basis of uh, healthcare claims coming from insurance companies, as well as medical care data. So largely it is um, medical records, visits, um, x-rays, labs, etc. We augment that data though with social determinants of health and other aspects of public data that might be put out by CDC and NIH. Um, we do a lot of derivation of that, but I wouldn't say we necessarily have just, I wouldn't say we necessarily bring in um, like oversight of mask wearing and that sort of thing. We, we derive likelihood of that based on what we're seeing in the data and the outcome of, of diagnoses more typically. Now, during your presentation, you mentioned that your tracker could predict new COVID-19 hotspots 10 days before official announcements and was right 80% of the time. How have local governments or other organizations used your tracker to manage outbreaks once they are predicted? The way we have engaged, I would say, with communities has largely been through consortiums and guidance in how to use our data and how to leverage the tracker. So we've participated in a number of public consortiums um, and nonprofit organizations that have come to us and basically asked us to be um, supportive advisors and enablers of how they might both use the data, but also think about their own data and think about how they're analyzing trends. Uh, we did some work with respect to provider data where we worked with an organization that gave us an extract of their provider data we cleansed it, assessed it, and provided it back to them so it would be more meaningful as they were reaching out to their communities and uh, providers specifically. How widespread is the data used in your tracker? Have you been able to incorporate information from all 50 states, or do you have plans to include international data? Our data is largely um, healthcare claim data as a baseline. It covers the entire United States, uh, I believe it covers bits of Canada as well, though not comprehensively. Um, because the majority of who we work with and support tend to be United States healthcare providers and payers, it tends to be US centric, our data. Um, intention to go international is unlikely for us because uh, it's not really in our business model, but it doesn't stop us from bringing international assessments, data, public data, et cetera, because definitely looking at trends in other countries is helpful for informing us and in looking at the trajectory of our patients as well. How do you anticipate your COVID-19 outbreak tracker evolving as vaccines become more available to the public? So the interesting thing about our data is that we, we know definitively when one of the patients in our purview gets a vaccine, if it 
travels through the healthcare transaction system. So we know definitively they've gotten a transact, they've gotten a vaccine. We also know definitively if they've taken a test and it's gone through the healthcare uh, transaction system, payment system, that they have a diagnosis. So in our data, we're able to basically see and start to predict trends where you start to see an inflection point where number of vaccines in a given area, number of diagnoses in a given area, number of tests in a given area, and we can triangulate those three paths of data into inflection points where perhaps we start to see the trajectory completely shift. Vaccines going up, diagnoses going down, positive tests going down. And so that's some of the work we're just beginning to kind of take a look at as more vaccines, as you know, have just recently started rolling out in magnitude. And so having enough data have statistical significance is where we're headed at this stage. Um, but being able to find and, and target that inflection point is of definitely significant interest to us and I think really as a country. And lastly, what role do you see for predictive data and AI in healthcare in the post-COVID world? So this is actually the, in some ways, the more exciting part of my job and, and AI and ML generally, which is when you think about, I'm going to go back to the idea of having temporality of data for a patient. So you have a patient, you've got limited amount of data about that person, where AI really comes into play is helping us create and identify, in essence, digital personas or digital twins is what they often call it. So let's say about me, we only know a certain amount, but if, there's a, if we have a comprehensive data set on someone like me, my digital twin or my digital phenotype, then it's much easier to go about finding the right prognosis for me, the right diagnostics, the right treatment plans, because AI has helped sort of fill in those blanks. Um, and they're not perfect, but AI is really um, advantageous in that way when we think about the lack and the gap in data that we have for any given patient when they visit the doctor. Example, you go to the doctor, you go to multiple doctors, how many of those doctors share data or have even, even if they wanted to share data, had the accessibility of that data from, from one another? They, they generally don't. And so there's a constant desire and ask to interoperate that data and make it available that's both a technical problem, but it's also a logistical and ethical problem to be solved. Uh, AI really can sort of help solve for that uh, in, in an almost artificial way, but still with tons of benefits. And I think that's the really exciting part of this, which is filling in those gaps um, where interoperability and the laws we pass for interoperability have failed to solve for those gaps so far. To learn more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.